Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. While working as an intern in the archives at the Harry Ransom Center, Jen Chaplin encounters the love letters of Carson McCullers and a woman named Anne Marie, letters that are tender, intimate, and unabashed in their feelings. Chaplin recognizes herself in the letter's language, but does not see McCullers as history has portrayed her. In genre-defying vignettes, Jen, Jen Chaplin interweaves her own story with Carson McCullers to create a vital new portrait of one of, of America's most beloved writers and shows, shows us how the writers we love and the stories we tell about ourselves make us who we are. And for our speakers tonight, Jen Chaplin is a writer living in New Mexico. Her nonfiction has been published in O, The Oprah Magazine, Tin House, Outside Online, The Lifted Brow, Electric Literature, and elsewhere. Her essay, Finders Keepers, won a 2017 Pushcart Prize, and she was awarded the 2019 Rabkin Foundation Award for Art Journalism for 13 Ways of Moving to the Desert and Field Report, El Paso and Juarez. She has a PhD in English from the University of Texas at Austin. Andy Campbell, PhD, is an art historian, critic, and curator. It says that. Yeah, so. I know. <laughs> okay. I just, okay. Um, <laughs> With more than a decade of experience in higher education and museum institutions, Campbell's projects focus on the juncture of identity-based political movement, visual culture, and arts histories. He is currently Assistant Professor of Critical Studies at USC Roski School of Art and Design. So please give a very, very warm welcome to Jen and Andy. <laughs> Awesome, thank you so much for that. Um, and thank you, Andy, for being here with me. God, thank you. Uh, I'm so lucky to have you as a friend. Um, and so I'm uh, on, can you all hear me okay? I'm on stop 13 or 14 of a multi-city tour, so um, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> and this is my last stop for a little while. Um, and so it's just really special to be here in LA where I have not just a lot of really good friends, but also some family. I have two aunts in the crowd tonight. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a really special event and a really great way to end the tour. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start by reading a little bit from the beginning of the book. Um, the book's in really short chapters. There's 80 chapters and 250 pages, so you can do the math. Um, and then I'll, I'll read a couple other little sections uh, after that, and then we'll go into the uh, conversation. <coughs> Let's follow this. Okay. <coughs> Articulation. Carson McCullers, when she is remembered, is remembered as a novelist who grew up in Columbus, Georgia, moved to New York in her 20s, and spent the rest of her life writing about misfits in the American South. Her characters are mute or too tall or black or queer and almost always lonely and out of place in a conservative small town that looks a lot like her own. In 1940, her first novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, brought her fame at 23 
Her books were made into films and Broadway plays. One of her best friends was Tennessee Williams. She called him Ten, and she feuded with copycat Truman Capote for years. She married the same man, Reeves McCullers, twice, and is rumored to have chased after women. She was often drunk, chronically ill, and, like so many of her era, she died young. If you've heard of her, you've probably heard some version of this. To tell her own story, a writer must make herself a character. To tell another person's story, a writer must make that person some version of herself, must find a way to inhabit her. This book takes place in the fluid distance between the writer and her subject, in the fashioning of a self in all its permutations on the page. Correspondence. I wasn't expecting love letters. The paper was browned with age and wrinkled at the edges. Anne-Marie's handwriting filled the page, bearing hard to the right and often spilling back up the left-hand margin with last editions. I read through the clear mylar sleeves, too intern nervous to remove the pages from their housing. April 10th at night. Carson, child, my beloved, you know that leaving the day after tomorrow, feeling half afraid and proud, leaving behind me all I care for once again, and a wave of love, I looked up at the rows of manuscript boxes that surrounded me, mind humming, face flushed. Did that mean what I thought it meant? What did she mean, love? Instinctively, I listened for anyone who might be coming. Hearing only the ticking of the sliding electric shelves, I read on. To Carson, Anne-Marie recalled, talking as we did, you and I, at that lunchtime, you remember, at the corner near the Bedford Hotel, with milk and bread and butter ages ago. Four years before I visited the Georgia archives housing Carson's transcribed therapy sessions, before I knew much more of Carson than her name, I was an intern at the Harry Ransom Center, a giant collection of writers and artists' books and papers on the University of Texas campus in Austin. The gig was a kind of coup. It got me out of teaching for two years while I was a graduate student and gave me unfettered access to the papers and belongings of major writers. On each day of my two years at the center, I came into the shared intern office and answered queries from scholars about their research from a stack of mail by the door. Most were boring. About half of them were about either David Foster Wallace or Norman Mailer. My favorite find was a series of letters one of Mailer's mistresses had written him with the salutation, summing up my own feelings, dear American shithead. <laughs> one day in early February 2012, a scholar wrote asking for letters between Anne-Marie Clarac Schwarzenbach, whose name was utterly unfamiliar, and Carson McCullers, whose book titles had always struck a chord with me. The heart is a lonely hunter, like same. <laughs> but I'd never gotten around to reading any. Books seem to find me when I'm ready for them, or else I abandon them. I took the freight elevator down to the icy basement manuscript room, pulled the correspondence folder, it was 29.1, I still recall, and started reading it right there in the stacks. Anne-Marie's language in her letters to Carson is intimate, suggestive, or I read it that way. You remember. I had received letters like these. 
I had written letters like these to the women I'd loved. It was very little to go on, and yet I felt an utter certainty. Carson McCullers had loved women, or at least this woman had loved her. Immediately, without articulating a reason, I wanted to know everything about them both. I brought the folder upstairs to my shelf in the intern office, hurried to my three o'clock reference desk shift, and started Googling. This was research, I rationalized, part of the job. Anne-Marie, I discovered, was a Swiss writer, photographer, silk heiress, and known lady killer who spent time in New York in the 1930s and early 40s, but there wasn't much to go on. In folder 29.1, I found eight letters from Anne-Marie to Carson, but none of Carson's replies. One has the heading, On the Congo River, September 1941. Another, On the Boat from Portuguese Angola to Lisbon. After counting the pages for the scholar and replying to his request, I took the folder downstairs and tucked it back into its box. Later, I would keep stacks of Carson's books and manuscripts on my shelf in the office, but at that moment, I didn't feel entitled to have these letters so nearby. I had, however, transcribed some of them into an email that I sent to myself. The scholar never ordered the scans. So I find these letters uh, and become kind of obsessed with uh, understanding this story and this version of Carson McCullers that appears uh, in the letters and that I don't end up seeing reflected in her biographies or kind of the major narratives about her that are out there. Um, so I kind of keep looking on my own. Uh, I ended up cataloging her clothes and personal effects at the Harry Ransom Center. Uh, and then I went to live in her childhood home in Columbus, Georgia for a month, uh, which is a museum. <coughs> While I was there, I found some transcripts of therapy sessions that Carson did when she was in her 40s. Uh, and uh, I kind of kept falling down these different rabbit holes along the way. So I'm going to go ahead and just read a few sections from when I was in the house, uh, and then we'll shift over to conversation mode. Chick-fil-A. <laughs> the Chick-fil-A was how I knew where to turn for Carson's house, which is green with another green house next door, and a code to get inside, and a feeling of dead dust. Her neighborhood, which used to perch on the rural outskirts of Columbus, now borders an excruciatingly typical main thoroughfare, lined with fast food, a Rite Aid, and a Walgreens, and a Circle K. I have never eaten Chick-fil-A, for obvious political reasons. <laughs> but the drive through lane was always overflowing and blocking the turn for Stark Avenue. Instead, one night, I ordered a pizza, and the delivery guy showed up on Carson's porch and asked, do you live here? Yes, I said immediately, concerned that his handing over the pizza depended on a correct answer. <laughs> well, sort of. The pizza man told me he goes by this place every day. He grew up nearby, and the historic registry sign out front made him think it was a museum. It is, I told him, and he eyeballed me. I was thrilled by this awkward encounter, my first conversation with a person in days, and pizza in hand, closed the door behind him, sad to see him go. I wanted to play ghost a little longer. Got all the wrong pages marked, hang on. Okay. 
<clears throat> blue chair. I did not sit in Carson's blue chair. I did not even take a picture of it. There are two pale blue armchairs in the room of the Stark Avenue house I called the entertainment room. A record player, a mounted flat screen TV, a piano, and the organ. But I could tell from photos which chair was the favorite, the one Carson could sit comfortably in right up to the end. I didn't touch that chair. Several newspaper articles refer to Carson as wheelchair bound in the 1950s and 60s, but I've only seen a few photos of her in a wheelchair. If true, this implies that someone, Ida, Mary, would lift her in their arms and place her in the blue chair. A beautiful image of care, illness as revelator of love. As the photos flip back in time from folder to folder, Carson looks frail and small in the chair. Then she looks spry and sprawling in a shawl with a friend, a Japanese painter. And then there's a photo of her nurse, Ida, in the chair after Carson's gone. When I think of my time in Columbus, my imagination will often first conjure this room where I sat on the couch in the evenings watching Hillary win the presidential primary and episodes of Buffy on the phone with Chelsea doing the same. Where the chair should be, there's a gap in my memory, a smudge on the lens. Organ. <coughs> I tried several times to play it, but I couldn't get it to sound. The organ stands in the corner of the entertainment room, taller than I am and dark wood and ornately carved. It was a gift from Carson to her therapist, Mary Mercer. The last day of my stay at the house, the director of the McCullers Center sat me down in a coffee shop with Bible verses decorating each table to tell me he had heard in no uncertain terms that Carson and Mary were never romantically involved. I'm wondering what that even means, romantically involved, because what else can we call it that Mary saved every single letter, postcard, telegram, and valentine that Carson wrote her during the nine years they spent together? Not to mention every tiny card that came stuck in a bouquet of flowers Carson sent her, at least 50 of which I dutifully scanned for my files. When Carson died, Rita tried to sell her house in Nyack and all it contained, but Mary, after a series of fraught letters, bought it and kept it exactly as it had been, even the gardens. These commodities, these records of consumer goods exchanged, this real estate are all that linger, all that we can point to and say, love. The Stark Avenue house is full of Carson's wedding photos, but the organ looms. Thank you. <laughs> so I think what we should do is spend maybe 20 minutes or so us chatting and then we'll definitely open it out um, to your questions. I was gonna start with like a broad question about archives and archival work, but the sections that you read are so, uh, like a lot of this book as, as both the whole and also in part is such a testament to doing work around specifically lesbian lives and encountering lesbian lives in archives and how we work against something like lesbian invisibility and archival structures. Mm -hmm. And you give this list of kind of archival work at some point in the book where you, you describe it as loss, access, touch, and erasure. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about kind of, uh, I mean, 
part of what I think you're running up against as you kind of write about questioning the meaning of love or like there wasn't much to go on with Anne-Marie, right? Or like, you know, even this kind of like phrase of romantically involved is so much of it is reading between the lines and also um, engaging in something that something like Sadia Hartman would call like, you know, critical fabulation or something, right? right? So can you talk about kind of how that work unfolds in an archive? I mean, it doesn't just all come at you at once. It kind of happens piecemeal by piecemeal, but but maybe you can say a little bit about kind For of sure. encountering lesbian lives in archives and what particular challenges yeah. come with that. Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of the first thing that happened in this whole process was, was finding these letters that felt like evidence of a particular lesbian relationship and then trying to see if like anyone would confirm that evidence elsewhere uh, mm -hmm. in other things that had been written. Um, and I, I really couldn't find that confirmation. I found instead kind of like a whole slew of euphemisms uh, about uh, their their friendship. Um, or, or I found kind of this very disparaging account of how Carson was obsessed with Anne-Marie and Anne-Marie never returned her feelings. So instead it would be kind of framed as this like weird crush. Um, and so for me, it, it ended up being about trying to gather up as many fragments as I could um, that would try to you know make a more complete picture of this relationship and then of some of her other relationships with women. But um, it was such a fragmented process. Um, and so I, I did kind of make these little discoveries as I went along. I even kind of found evidence of her life and her identity in the clothes that I uh, cataloged. But of course, like none of this is uh, kind of obvious. It's this like queer reading between the lines, yeah. right? Like you're always kind of trying to pick up on the subtext. Um, and Carson was kind of a master at the subtext um, mm -hmm. and at conveying that in her photographs and in her books um, without you know ever necessarily saying anything explicitly. Um, but those absences are such a huge part of any uh, research project that involves archives. Um, and archives are necessarily incomplete. They're kind of a random assortment of things um, that have been uh, kept uh, and and then you know given or, or sold to the archives. So you really have to make uh, what you can with the pieces and fragments that are there. Um, and for that reason, I kind of wanted to preserve some of those absences and those uh, gaps uh, when I was writing the book. Uh, I I I actually started writing it in these very short sections and. Um, the sections allowed me to, yeah, keep some of that space and some mm -hmm. of the, the missingness, right, of the picture. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what that does for me as a reader is is give me the experience, and you and I have spent a lot of time in archives, but give me the experience of kind of encountering bit by bit, you know, instead of being right. told the story. I mean, what was interesting about the section you read, too, is that, like, you give the brief of Carson McCullough's life. I just kept thinking as you were reading it, like, God, this feels so insufficient. Like everything about it feels, after reading the whole book, like everything about this biographical description kind of reads insufficient to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, like she may have had relationships with women, kind of gets like a little like cursory kind of thing, right? Um, so how did you, what was the kind of calculus in unfolding the biographical details of Carson McCullough's life? Like how did you want to tell or lay out that particular story? Because you could have gone, you know, from cradle to grave, mm -hmm. and instead I think you kind of went with this more kind of emotive, uh, related to how you encountered her life in the archive, it seems. So how did you kind of make that decision? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I really started to become allergic to traditional biographies while I was working on this project that start like so-and-so was born in, in this given year, or they even start with like their grandparents or their mm -hmm. great-grandparents, because it ends up recounting all of these events that the person might not even really remember or value or consider to be part of you know their identity. Um, and it's so formulaic, like the kind of intentional chronological approach, and so different from the way I think about my own life uh, and reflect on it. You know, that's, mm -hmm. you know, memory and um, the passage of time, you know, mean that everything is sort of mixed up and certain things take on a huge amount of weight and other things just totally disappear from the record up here, um, at least for me. So I, I wanted to be able to kind of mimic that in the way that I was writing about it. And I didn't want to impose some kind of completist, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, narrative onto something that was fundamentally incomplete. Um, so, yeah, I, I really tried to uh, ground the biographical portions of the book in my specific encounters with these archival objects. So the letters, the clothes, the house, uh, and the rest of Columbus, Georgia, um, <coughs> and the materials I found there. Um, and it just became more and more important as I went along, er, it began to seem more important that I also kind of start putting myself into the picture um, as the person who was seeing those objects and interpreting mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and to me, there's this way in which you kind of countervail some of those biographies of Carson McCullers that really represent her in the same light that some of her most kind of famous characters kind of appear in, these kind of like, folks that don't necessarily fit into any place in society. And one thing that you do, I think, extraordinarily well in this book is communicate how connected Carson McCullers really was. Like yeah. what an amazing um, branching group of friends, intimates, lovers, um, maybe sometimes enemies, <laughs> you know, that, that, that she had. And so part of it must have been working out, okay, when was she connected to each of these people? Um, how did you kind of start putting together that that kind of tree of, of her kind of connections and what those connections mean to her, or kind of meant to her, or seemed to kind of maybe meant to her. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the ways I did it was by like looking, for example, at these therapy transcripts mm -hmm. that she had made because she wanted to turn them into an autobiography, um, which was kind of a ludicrous idea <laughs> that she had in her 40s. Um, but just anytime she mentioned a name, even if just like a first name, I would just kind of do a deep dive and figure out who this person was that she was mentioning, you know, casually. I would even go mm. out and, you know, find maybe a biography of that person if it existed. And so, like, let's not knock biographies completely because they're <laughs> extremely useful, mm -hmm. uh, even if a little bit, I think, dull to read mm -hmm. <laughs> some of the time. Uh, but so I would kind of like, you know, if, if someone was mentioned, I would kind of, you know, go and find out as much as I could about them. And so it became kind of this massive reading project um, that spanned numerous archives as I tried to sort of, you know, pull these pieces mm -hmm. together um, and understand, you know, who was where, when. Um, but there were really incredible moments of community and connection that emerged, like the that lunch that happens in Fire Island where Patricia Highsmith and Jane Bowles and, like, all of their girlfriends are there. <laughs> and, like, uh, it just seemed really striking to me that... Uh, that history exists and we can even find it like written records of it and yet it doesn't seem like maybe because of the way we focus so much on individuals mm -hmm. in history we we miss those relationships and communities um, 
And I like what you said about, you know, the way Carson's cast is this, like, total outsider. Um, yeah, if you really read, like, any any short cursory, like, examination of her life, it'll sound like she never had any friends. That's right, yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's just so false when you actually start looking at her letters and you start uh, uh, reading anything that others have, have really said about her uh, and their relationships with her. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe we've kind of already been talking about this, but I kind of wanted to, once I kind of encountered this question in the book, I kind of wanted to ask it to you directly. It's a question that you are given by Eileen Miles to ask them at a book festival. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's a really interesting question. I'd be interested to hear kind of your your answer to it. Sorry to put you on the spot That's with this, okay. but you know, um, the question essentially is, what does it mean to be queer in being and in writing? Mm -hmm. Right, and connecting those two things, right? Because um, I think this book, performs that work in some ways but yeah, yeah certainly that was like a big question in my mind at the time of writing this you know trying to figure out my own identity and relationship to sexuality like that was really what was happening at the time of writing this book and then it was also a time when I was uh, technically in grad school working on a dissertation about a totally separate topic um, and uh in the process of discovering that I actually really wanted to be writing and writing in a more accessible way uh, and writing nonfiction. Um, and all of that kind of <laughs> happened in the archive because I you yeah. know, started writing from the archive. Uh, and so I think uh, Eileen's answer to that was what is what is queerness in, what, what's the question, queerness yeah, in? Yeah, what is it to be in being uh, yeah, and writing? Yeah, queer in being and in writing. Um, their answer was uh, constant shifting the ever new, um, which I really enjoy. And I think shifting is a good um, sort of metaphor uh, for thinking about it because to me, um, yeah, it's like this, uh, this moving target uh, mm -hmm. within uh, identity or this, this sense that like there is no kind of like fixed person that you eventually become right mm -hmm. um there is no like one you know single encapsulating word that can define you um you're kind of on a day-to-day -day basis wrestling with that identity and uh i always think about it as like in terms of outfits so you're like trying on different versions mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. um but the same goes for for writing where you're kind of constantly trying to find a new form to capture in mm -hmm. in this case this type of life and the, the parts of this life that haven't really been recorded. Yeah, can you talk about maybe that, because I know that you mentioned to me that um, that one of the things you did when assembling this book is to cut up the book and to actually kind of physically reassemble it. So mm -hmm. that shifting, that literal kind of like this here, that there, now, today, tomorrow, yeah. it's somewhere else. Can you say a little bit about like how that method was useful to you or totally. how that might be related in this way? Because I think that's a really queer way to assemble yeah, a I never narrative thought in about a way. It that yeah, way yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, uh, I, I never really, like, well, so this was kind of the first experiment with this, but I never really write anything start to finish. I kind of write um, a lot of bits and pieces and then, yeah, cut those pieces apart physically, like print it out and cut it um, and, and lay it out on the floor usually, um, move the pieces around until I get an order that makes sense, which is very much... Um, you know, kind of intuitive process of understanding, you know, like where each um, point of like interest is that I've assembled. Um, it's also the time when you can start to see like what's missing, what are the gaps, um, you know, what haven't I explored. But that process is, is also a little bit random. 
Um, so, like, for example, I lay all the pieces out on the floor and I get them in the order I want. And then one of our cats comes and just, like, runs across <laughs> the whole thing and then um, messes up all the pieces because he's an editor at heart. Um, and he's ruthless. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. a dick. Yeah, yeah totally. He'll, yeah. he'll kill yeah, yeah. all of your darlings. Yeah. 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 You know? um, and so, so, but, you know, just, like, uh, research uh, and uh, any kind of, especially archival research, but I think any kind of research uh, is has a little bit of that randomness, a little bit of that. Uh, yeah, we can call it like serendipity if we're being like generous, um, yeah. but we can also just call it like, you know, whatever you happen to find yeah. <laughs> on a given day. Um, I think part of that is actually like important to my process, and so the moving of the pieces around allows me to see, you know, for example, like this detail next to this detail, I never thought about those together, what connects them, or, or how do they contradict one another. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's important to me to kind of be, yeah, constantly rearranging um, the in my life and in my work. Yeah, I, I think there are also parallels to be drawn with the way that you say, like, talk about illness or chronic illness and kind of the way that that's either understood or not understood by certain individuals and communities and also the way that that kind of weaves its way through your narrative, too. You draw these, like, distinct, um, like, there are these places where you kind of put queerness and illness next to each other because they live in your body next to each other, right? Like, mm -hmm. and they're felt and experienced. Um, and I'm wondering if you, like, maybe actually, could we actually go to one of these places sure. where that happens? Is that, yeah. okay, um, to 199, I think, is a good uh -huh. place. Um, you've just kind of um, gone through and talked about um, some of the ways in which kind of her uh, Carson McCullers' vulnerability is both recognized and kind of misrecognized, I think, by some of her closest associates, like, like Tennessee Williams, for example, kind of writes her this, like, get it together yeah. letter, <laughs> kind of, um, right? Um, and you're also talking about the, the, the situation for queer folks at that particular moment where it was, where queerness was an illness, right? And right. where it really was seen as kind of something that was a sign or, or a signal of kind of some kind of illness. And you kind of end with this really beautiful paragraph that's actually about your own illness. And I'm wondering if you can just read that. Sure, yeah. 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 <clears throat> My own chronic illness connects to fear, the feeling of not being real that accompanies queer womanhood. I don't always remember or believe that my illness is real because there is no reflection of it outside myself, my own feelings. As a, quote, fashionable illness, it is a subject of ridicule, like Carson's, quote, obsessions with women, or something that others fail or refuse to acknowledge, like lesbian invisibility. And earlier in the book, you, when talking about Eleanor Roosevelt, you kind of castigate an easy way of kind of making a joke out of Eleanor Roosevelt's kind of sensible shoes. Yeah, and you yeah. kind of say, like, it's a funny, it's a, it may be a funny joke, but what happens if we don't make it a joke? And what happens if we actually take queer women's lives seriously? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how connecting to um, and writing about your illness, which you haven't only done here, you've done it in shorter nonfiction pieces too, um, how that actually is deeply connected to queerness in some way for you. Because I feel like it keeps kind of coming back and kind Together. of joins queerness a lot. Yeah. kind of in your writing, so. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one way that they connect in my life is just a feeling of, um, 
I guess, constantly having to come out uh, mm -hmm. as a queer woman or as a chronically ill person mm -hmm. um, and kind of constantly having to like inform people of that even you know like if I don't really feel like it mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so you know having to describe that experience that's very personal or like share that with people that I don't know very well like mm -hmm. uh, it just um, it just means it's something that I'm navigating and dealing with uh, and finding language for on a daily basis absolutely um, and I think uh, I, I found that really an interesting connection. I, I wasn't thinking so much about the illness connection when I first started mm -hmm. writing um, this book because I was also in the process of uh, being diagnosed. And, and so, like I said, all of these different things were happening at once in my life. And it's only like now, years later, that I can look back and be like, oh, that was, well, I was mm -hmm. happening that year. <laughs> you know, I was really mm -hmm. figuring out all of these different things and, and illness is just one of them. But studying uh, Carson's life and really uh, hearing what she had to say about what it was like to live in the aftermath of her strokes um, with uh, her left side paralyzed for part of her life um, and just with the kind of ongoing like symptoms like migraines and uh, other uh, pain and you know recovery from surgery, all these kind of day in, day out struggles that she had um, was really comforting to me just to know, you know, like, oh, there are other people out there who deal with s things along these mm -hmm. lines. Uh, she was still able to write, which is pretty inspiring. Um, and she was still able to have a really extremely full life, but she was also able to talk about it. She, she talked about her illness and how she was feeling in her letters, uh, especially. And I think that's really important. And I think it's something uh, that we don't really talk about quite enough um, that or that we have a lot of discomfort around talking about um, you know even now so yeah yeah well I think it makes sense given the kinds of objects that you kind of alight on so like the chair or mm -hmm. the kind of you imagine a porch swing that someone's in you know like I think like there are these kind of ways in which that kind of recalls a kind of southern location but also it's also about the body at rest, in repose. Totally, at, in I didn't like, think yeah. about that. Yeah, I mean, like, I Good mean, job. well, the only thing that made me think about that was your your piece uh, that the Lungers and I, mm -hmm. which is you know about this kind of culture of bathing and wellness that kind of comes up in the nineteenth. It's tuberculosis, right? Yeah, yeah. tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah, um, and Flesh? and this is yeah, bless you. Um, and this is and this is a place. And so the bathtub becomes a really important place, yeah. I think, for you. Uh -huh. But like also like in the way that you tell the story of who these folks are, who the lungers are. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, I think there's something about furniture, wellness furniture or <laughs> something here, right? Yeah. Like it's like totally the comfy is. chair, the bathtub, yeah. the like, yeah. So I'm just curious if, yeah, I don't know. Well, that's just so interesting. And like I hadn't thought about that at all. But yeah, the, the comfort of the body um, does become kind of like a through line and, and something that came up in Carson's therapy sessions was that like she she recounts this dream she had um, where she's like skiing and uh, which like at this time she's using a cane or a walker and like half of her body's paralyzed but she has a dream where she's skiing uh, in the Alps and like just describes the like utter comfort she feels in her body and then ultimately says you know to her therapist Mary that like I'm pretty sure that like you're the one who's able to like free me in this way or to make me feel this this sense of comfort. So then mm -hmm. there's the connection back to uh, queerness and amazing. queer relationships and yeah. kind of that freeing of the body. Yeah. yeah. I have one more question, then we'll open okay. out, if that's okay. I mean, because one of, so to connect with the sitting and with kind of taking care of the body, 
Um, so there's a lot in here about your time at the HRC, the Harry Ransom Center, which is kind of how I know you, kind of through other people who were interns there. Yes, these folks right here. Um, but I, but there's not a lot of. T you also worked at a bookstore in Austin uh -huh. for a little bit, a bookstore that was actually on this book tour too. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. got to kind of go back to this place where you um, had worked. And there's not a ton about working in a bookstore and what working in a bookstore is or how it kind of, you know, if you're looking for a certain biography, how you could <laughs> like potentially find that in the bookstore. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, kind of, what was the difference between those kinds of work for you? Yeah, and also like. Why does one kind of make it into the book and the other really kind of doesn't? Doesn't. That's yeah. A good question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what was great about both of those jobs was that there was a lot of uh, downtime, <laughs> so I could do yeah. a lot of like thinking and musing yeah. and researching yeah. on the yeah. job uh, at in either space, um, and I just had access to different uh, collections of materials in in either one. <laughs> so mm -hmm. at the archive, I had. Uh, the manuscripts and books and uh, personal effects that I spent a lot of time with. At the bookstore, I had, you know, like what you see around you. Um, it was great working there because I could uh, really, like, expand my own horizons a little bit because, you know, it, I, I often, especially at the beginning, I worked weekend nights and the bookstore was open till 11 p.m. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'd be, like, stuck up on the second floor uh, and just, like, you know, counting down the minutes, but it was a great time to just like walk through the different sections and kind of be inspired or get ideas. And again, like back to the randomness thing, kind mm -hmm. of make these sort of random connections that just come up with what is catching your eye or like what book you need to like rearrange and like. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe you pick it up and maybe you like read a little bit of it mm -hmm. and maybe you come back to it and like, right, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And there were, there were books on the floor there that, uh, I came back to over and over again, you know, uh, as though it were like some kind of library. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, the other thing that's great about working in a bookstore is that you're surrounded by readers, both by like the customers who come in to buy the books and the other people who work there. But everyone's like a very different kind of reader from you. They have like totally different interests and um, like desires. So uh, I always liked when someone would come and come in and ask like oh what should I read like what should I read right now and then you're like oh what did you like that you read lately and it becomes this whole like back and forth of like figuring out like what's the prescription for them right mm -hmm. now like mm -hmm. what's gonna uh, help them uh, figure out what they need um, and I love those interactions and I just feel like I learned so much from them yeah. Uh, and and yeah just like gathered a lot of new ideas and perspectives mm. yeah so I'm sure you have questions out there um, so if there are questions, maybe we can throw to you. If not, I've got more. <laughs> yeah, okay, that was enough to do it. Yeah, 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 okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Love, yeah, like, like my dear heart. Yeah, yeah right. Flowers, right, like totally. Not, it's actually not that ephemeral. It's actually quite material and real. So it's just obviously not up for debate. Dismissed. Or dismissed. So it really sounds like it's happening. You did find quite a bit, right? Yeah, and something that's kind of interesting about that, about what I did find, 
um, and talk about in the book is that uh, a lot of it is housed at the Columbus State University Archive in Georgia uh, in the Mary Mercer papers. Mary Mercer is Carson's therapist and she holds all of her papers and materials back until her death. She doesn't make anything public until her death in 2013. And I come along like a little bit after that. Um, and so not a lot of scholars have had access to this material before now. Um, but at the same time, um, the McCullers estate did not give me permissions mm -hmm. to quote from those materials. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually had to go back and cut a number of quotations and, and paraphrase them kind of late in the game. So it was, it was strange. It was like after having done all this research and, and really written about this, um, these kind of direct and indirect forms of censorship that were going on with her story that censoring voice like reared up out of the ether and was like mm -hmm. trying to, you know, put, uh, influence the book and, and did. Uh, successfully do that. Um, and so I think it's easy to underestimate the power of those forces and those institutions, and especially certain institutions, which, uh, I mean, artists and writers' estates are notoriously complicated yeah. and difficult and often totally. have a stranglehold on a person's quote-unquote legacy. Um, and I think this is a real problem uh, and and but yeah something that's still so like even though I can tell you there are like 50 more than 50 of these ca cards um, I can't, can't quote, quote what they say yeah yeah there's actually a little note at the very beginning of your book it reads due to copyright constraints several documents including letters telegrams and a set of transcripts made from Carson McCullers's recorded therapy sessions have been paraphrased without direct quotation throughout this book I mean, like, I think when you're saying all of that, I'm thinking, like, yeah, this is exactly kind of what we encounter all the time when we think about queer lives in, in the archives. Like, certain parts have been scrubbed or have been, like, not allowed to be quoted or are held mm -hmm. for 50 years until after someone dies. And there may be great reasons for that, actually. I don't want to kind of disparage that. But but what it, effect, what it in effect does is it kind of creates this kind of shroud or a kind of, like, like a bell jar over something, you know, that like should be actually kind of discussed and talked about. Like I think about an artist that I wrote about who is really instrumental in um, Chicago's leather communities. And in his obituary, it only talked about his life as a dancer. Right. Right. And so like if you had read his obituary, you would have thought like thus died a dancer, you yeah. know, like it's like, exactly. and it just is not true yeah. in that way. Right. Yeah. Like so. So I, I feel in when I when I saw this kind of little note, it's like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Right. Like, right. Yeah. And it's so frustrating. I mean, I, I wonder how frustrated you were uh, just encountering yeah, that in your yeah. research. Um, and and I think like that note actually started as like a six thousand word essay in which I ranted about how mad I was about all of this and how devastating it was. Which I would was. like to read. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which I yeah, yeah. Um, for legal reasons cannot. Cannot. Publish. Yeah. <laughs> One day <laughs> someone will find it in your archives. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. One day after I can't be sued. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you did. So yeah. that's yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Complexity 
would love to hear from you. Um, you can reach us again at Yeah, I did. Yeah, um, I think that it, it was really like a question of what language would be appropriate. Um, but at the same time, uh, it was it was really important me, to me to kind of um, give language to something that had you know been shrouded in this way. Um, oh, do you want reaching? Yeah, yeah, I think it's you say it really. Beautifully yeah. there, yeah. Do you want me to read? That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What page? No, is that? I think this is like exactly it. One sixty-one. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. and so. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Preaching. So it isn't about is Carson a lesbian or Carson is a lesbian or what is a lesbian. What I want to know is how have lesbians gotten by and had relationships and found love and community? What does that look like? One answer. We don't really know. If we, writers, historians, biographers, can just start acknowledging the lesbian parts of ourselves and others, maybe we can start to know what that is, what it is to love women. But please, no more demands for certain kinds of proof. No more doesn't count unless bullshit. Don't tell me there's just not enough evidence. Let's call a lesbian a lesbian. Call yourself a lesbian if you've ever loved women, loved another woman period. You loved your mother? Lesbian. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, but it's so interesting because the, the way that chapter ends is that I talk about how, you know, I, I think it's all well and good to have these evasive terms, right, that we can mm. uh, apply in different ways. And at the same time, there's part of me that really still wants um, to name names to a certain extent and to and to really understand like who in the past I can call kin, right? Like who can I uh, relate to? Um, which is why like so many times, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, like I find myself ending up at the personal uh, history, what's that, uh, the personal life yeah. on Wikipedia, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, or just like, you know, or just yeah. Googling the specific, like trying to figure out like, well, what's this person's deal? And it's like very hard to figure out, which is why I included this list of Carson's possible girlfriends. Yeah, the there are two very helpful lists in this book. And then yeah. other likely lesbians. And then other likely lesbians, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the juggle, and like we can, I think we can have really capacious terms, and in this book, it almost becomes a manifesto about using the word lesbian to like ad nauseum to the point where like I am no longer comfortable <laughs> even with the word. Um, but I, I wanted to insist on it because no one else would say it, you know. And it's yeah, a word that makes well, and because of historical weird. contingencies, it's like that road was not open, you know, mm -hmm. for that kind of acknowledgement or that kind of identity kind right. of work to happen. So like on one hand, like you get kind of all these folks who say like, well, lesbians didn't exist. And it's like, well, fine, I guess. Like, right. you know, but like, but then helpful. how do we actually talk about exactly what you're putting focus on, which is like, how do lesbians get by? What are their communities and their familiars? And you know, like, how do we look at a social world with any kind of clarity if we're just gonna say like, Carson's woman friends. Like, yeah. it's like, it doesn't work yeah. at some level, right? right? Like, and that's what I really appreciate about your book is you like actually kind of 
put that stake in the ground. I mean, in that paragraph, actually, I yep. think. And you flip everyone's notion of what a lesbian might or could be, too. Mm -hmm. And so that feels like a useful thing, too. Well, you know? that, that was important to me to think about, like, well, if, if, insta if instead of lesbians being this thing over here or being, like, this slur that certain politicians can use when they call them horse-faced lesbians, um, for example, That's I'm right. not mentioning names, um, but, like, I instead of it being this slur, it could be this word that, like, we could all participate in and that, like, we could all just think, like, well, some part of all of us is... A a woman and that part can also love women mm -hmm. and so yeah yeah we we can all be lesbians yeah. together yeah. <laughs> that's what i'm saying any other questions yeah Oh, interesting. Um, I guess romantic friendship to me is at like more of a historical term that was used to refer to women's relationships in the 19th century um, when relationships that we would today probably refer to as lesbian um, were just uh, referred to as friendships. Um, and so there are relationships where you see love letters, you see shared property, you see all of these different signs uh, of what we would consider a lesbian relationship today, but they're referred to as friendships. Um, and, and in that way, both erased and normalized. Like, they were okay because they were friendships, right? They're just friends. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I think uh, I wanted to sort of recover that um, slightly weird historical note just to understand like that that has this hangover today in the way we talk about women's relationships, especially when we talk about like, oh, well, she was in college or something like that. You know, we kind of have this really dismissive tone mm -hmm. when it comes to women's relationships. And I think mm -hmm. it's it comes yeah. from that specifically, that trajectory yeah. of, of just like if we cordon them off in friendships, we don't have to worry about them too much. Yeah. There's another question. Yeah. For sure. I think yeah. both, yeah. I definitely think both. And yeah, her illness is so confusing. Like, just trying to find out how did this woman die was, like, a huge project. Um, and that also goes back, I think, to the question of euphemisms. Yes. Um, but also to, like, there's a whole other can of worms here about women's health uh, and Western medicine and how, um, basically, uh, how common it is for women to be misdiagnosed. Um, when she was having strokes, uh, she was often told that it was psychological uh, and that like the fact that she was like temporarily paralyzed and blind was because she was like having like a massive panic attack was kind of the idea. Like Psych psychosomatic. psychosomatic yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so yeah. like there's, which that still happens today um, to like women when they go to the doctor and say like X is wrong and they're yes. like, maybe you just need these antidepressants. Um, so that happened her whole life. Um, she was misdiagnosed at an early age um, 
And then, like, ultimately they figured out that what she had was rheumatic fever, um, and that kind of led to the strokes. But it was this kind of, like, as with everything, it was this, like, refusal to just, like, listen to her and, and respond to that that sort of led to um, people not understanding what was going on, you know, and then mm. all of her subsequent issues. Lupus. Um, you know, Flannery O'Connor had lupus. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I don't think she had lupus, but like very similarly, again, uh -huh. to um, queer terms of yep. identification, like trying to diagnose someone in the past, it's really weird and confusing. Uh -huh. And like, we don't really know. I mean, we, we know she had rheumatic fever, but I also like, I don't feel confident enough in the doctors who were treating her to really know what was going on. Yeah. Maybe one more question if there's another question in the audience. Well, I I have one, <laughs> which is which is um sorry. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, um which is that you you and I both do something uh, very similar, which is we both end our books with or very proximate to the word love. Mm -hmm. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um but I'm but I'm wondering like, what is it about kind of ending with that particular word for you mm -hmm. in thinking through the project of this book, right? This kind of recuperative and also investigative, but also revealing and self-revealing kind of project. Yeah. Yeah, it took me a long time to realize that this was, like, at heart a love story. Um, and it was, like, a multiple love story. It was, like, Carson's love story. Mm -hmm. It was, like, the story of my love for her. For Carson, yeah. For, and for yeah. um, trying to, uh, which manifests as, like, just caring so much about what she had to say about her own life and wanting that to, like, be given space in the world. Um, and then it's also a story of, like, me like finding my own queer identity and falling in love and mm. so like all of those things are kind of um I feel like tucked away in this book um at the same time I, I think I did a lot of um thinking and reflecting and trying to understand like what love is and how it is recorded like how we can perceive it in a history um, and it's actually much easier to find evidence of like strife and difficult relationships than it is to find evidence of happy relationships. Like mm -hmm. once Carson was mm -hmm. in this really mm -hmm. um, like seemingly supportive, uh, great relationship, a lot of the letters and conversations stop, <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, yeah. And so then there's just less to go on um, and there's more silence. So uh, yeah. it just seemed like you have to, you have to say it and you have to call yeah. it what it is, yeah. right? Well, I think on the last stop of this book tour, to end with your last word and to kind of think about what that might mean is a nice way to kind of end. So thank you for yeah, being here. Thank and thank you, you so all much. for being here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.